Hey, welcome to the 168th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Jonathan Finn Holiday and Jordan Brady. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have Charlie Tyrrell on. He is a mixed media filmmaker. I mean, he has like a narrative background, but he also does documentary work. He does everything, commercials, and he had a documentary short at Sundance, My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes, which is excellent. Um, and he also just made a new documentary short called Broken Orchestra that is just like visually so interesting and so cinematic that Matt and I were just like super stoked to be able to talk to him. We had to talk to him. Yeah, you can check out uh, both uh, Broken Orchestra and My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes on uh, the show notes at justshootapod.com if you want to check them out before we dive into things, just so you get a sense of how... Uh, specific and visual these documentaries are. My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes was a Vimeo staff pick. It's kind of all over the internet. You may have already seen it. Um, And Broken Orchestra is equally beautiful and exciting and is on Topic.com. If you can watch them before the interview, then I think the interview will be a little more meaningful. But if you can't, it'll also be great. Yeah, we kind of add uh, context where applicable. But what I love so much about this conversation with Charlie and the reason that we were so excited to talk to him is that he lends such a a broad array of skills to uh, and perspectives to his documentaries right so there's mixed media there's animation there's interview pieces there's like found footage it's all so fascinating and we come to learn through this conversation with charlie that uh not only is he a really skilled filmmaker but he's a exceptionally skilled collaborator he puts such an emphasis on finding great people to work with so that they can all specialize a little bit more so it's not like charlie is a one-man band of like doing the animation and then also he's a cinematographer and xyz and i think it's a really wonderful illustration of why even when it's a small team um finding people to collaborate with that then have those unique skills really elevates the entirety of the project it's just a reminder that like collaboration is the name of the game with filmmaking and charlie is such a uh, humble gracious smart intelligent leader in that way yeah i also love that we talked a little bit about how he got some celebrities to do the voiceover for his shorts and how to approach someone like that to get them in a way that that's a lot easier than if you were trying to get a celebrity to be in your movie for instance which i, I think is worth worth for people to listen to he's got the secret sauce and you're going to learn exactly how he did it so i can't wait to dive into our conversation with charlie but before we do that before we do that matt let me ask you uh what have you been working on lately yeah so i uh i have been i'm wrapping up uh kind of a a number of series that i've been doing at a television show i'm kind of doing like field pieces and and the digital stuff for a television show that's been running for quite some time and it's really fascinating because they they're about to go on hiatus and so i've got a building full of co-workers who kind of have senioritis a little bit like they're talking about their vacation plans and they're also excited and they're feeling nostalgic and emotional about um, wrapping up this season and their summer plans and all of this stuff and it's such a funny feeling that you only get i think from long-running television right uh right and they're all full-time and you're kind of the freelancer exactly yeah i'm i'm like well yeah i'm gonna be on a job in two weeks um do they get paid when they're on hiatus uh they do not get paid on when they're on hiatus but i think the real gift is just that they know 
that they have um, a job waiting for them after the end of exactly. the Exactly. So, and so you can plan out vacation time is a really obvious thing for me where it's like, I think you and I are always hesitant to book things too far in advance because if something comes up, you hate to turn down a big job, even though you've got plane tickets booked. You know? Yeah, freelancer's dilemma. So I'm always very jealous of them knowing they have a winter break, a spring break, and a summer break. It's like, you know, it makes the lifestyle of television that much more appealing. Because like when they're working, they're working nonstop. They are sprinting all the time. But then they have a real break, you know? And I, I think we have a, a handful of friends who are kind of in that mode now where they're coming back and maybe they're going to pick up another project or day play. But, you know, after a number of seasons, it's just like, I'm going to going to have the good life a little bit. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an interesting thing as an adult. Uh, once you have kids, it kind of, you get back into that mm-hmm. mode of like, oh, it's spring break. Oh, it's winter break. Oh, it's summer break. Because you have to figure out what to do with your kids when they're not in school. But um, as a freelancer, it's like those are the scary times in <laughs> in your life because you're like, uh, everyone's gone. Who's going to read my script or hire me? Back. Yeah, and I, I find that the summer executives who have paid leave and um, kind of know when their shows are up and running and when it's pilot season and all that stuff, they similarly will have uh, some rhythms to their years that you know we would rather just work through. But you know, if somebody is out of town, then all of a sudden, you know the process just slows down in a way that can be uh, excruciating to a freelancer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Well, cool. Before we get into our interview with Charlie Turrell, we thought it would be cool to catch up with Jemai again. Jemai Youssef, who is a USC grad student that we've kind of been chatting with every few months just to see what the experience of being in film school is like. Yeah, hi. Hi. Are you still in film school? Yes, I'm still here. I have not dropped out. <laughs> have have many classmates uh, had career changes? Have, has anyone dropped out yet? So I have heard that a few people dropped out very, very early in the year, but I really don't remember them existing. Like, I don't know <laughs> if this happened. <laughs> That's what happens when you drop out of film school. You no longer exist. You're just erased from existence. Because it's a small program. So like, yeah. if they'd left an impact, you would remember them. Yeah. Unless they just did it really early, like first week or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we still have 60 people. So I don't see how we could have lost anyone. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And remind me, at USC, do you specialize in like directing or producing or writing? Or is it everyone does everything? So for the first year, we definitely all do everything and you know we don't even get to choose other classes like we each take the same class but I will say that from now on people will kind of start to specialize but it's not on an official level like we all get the same degree but at a certain point you can't take like all the different classes like if you want to take intermediate directing or or you can take intermediate cinematography and you kind of start heading down a path if that makes sense yeah yeah and you kind of you figure out the things that you like doing the best too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on that note, is there something that you're gravitating towards? Well, in terms of classes, I'm actually going to be doing production design for a 546 yeah. film. I had a hunch. Yeah. I had a hunch actually, because <laughs> last time we talked, you you were really into like kind of creating some sort of like 
creature effects sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like that kind of cra- that arts and crafts element, I think, is really appealing to me. And I feel like I recognize that in you a little bit. Yeah. So this, so 546 is um, one of the like famous USC classes. It's a big advanced project where the school gives like $10,000 to the budget of the film. And it's a narrative fiction film. So the uh, directors have to kind of like pitch and there's like an interview process and stuff and they get whittled down until there's just three of them. And then the directors and producers have to like pick their crews. So it was kind of like everyone's like interviewing, trying to see if they can, you know, get on a project. And it was basically like competitive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I'll be one of two production designers on this film. So, mm. which is great because my uh, my partner has way more production design experience than I do. <laughs> so that's, I guess you could say that's like a specialization, but I mean, I'm still here to be a director <laughs> at the end of the day. So, And would you say out of the 60 people in your class, how many of them are there to be a director? Is it close to 60? I don't know because now it's we're starting to see you know people who are getting to be really well known for things like maybe they still want to be a director but we all know them as like a really dope like cinematographer or like they're really good at sound so I feel and I feel like uh partially because of the way um the the professors kind of guide us but people are trying to find their backup plan if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah Um, totally yeah, and they tell us, oh, you know, you want to be able to get a job after you graduate, like editing or doing sound. So I think people are also doing a little bit of that. So, I mean, we'll see. So the undergrad equivalent to a 546 is a 480. Mm-hmm. Um, and unlike grad students, like you'll have a thesis project, but for undergrad, the the kind of group project is the big big thing mm-hmm. and i was a production designer what oh, really? no way yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool yeah that's why you production designed your last music yeah. video with zero worries <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well um, on that yeah. on that note of um like having a backup plan and figuring out how to how to have like more of a guaranteed job when you graduate matt and i were curious what your plans were for this summer Oh, so I'm taking two classes. Um, I'm taking one of our like critical studies kind of requirement classes on gender, sexuality, and the media. And then I'm taking a TV pilot writing course. Mm, um, that's cool. Yeah, I think we get to outline and like create a show Bible, but we don't actually have to write a pilot in the class. Um, so those are, that's my big thing. And I've also working, I'm working like three different work study jobs <laughs> at once also to kind of, you know, try to save up money. Um, and right after the semester ended, I worked on a short film where I was the production designer, you know, starting to practice. So <laughs> that was cool. And I might make a short film for my gender and sexuality class as well. How many years is your program again? Three years. Three years. years. So you're just finishing up your first year. Yep. So you're probably not yet at a place where you're like trying to figure out exactly what you do when you graduate. Well, that question, it's always there. (laughs) Mm 
Um, and I just started working at the industry relations office. Part of the reason I was like, oh, maybe they'll help me. <laughs> so sure, I'll figure yeah. out what to do when T- I graduate. Tell us, what, yeah, what does the industry's relations office do exactly? So there are a couple different things they do. They have the film festivals and distributions division, which is where I'm kind of directly working under, which is cool because those are the people that really help you to like decide where to submit your short film to and really guide you in that process. And then there's like an internships person um, who helps in that regard and like looking at resumes and stuff like that. And then there's also like a talent development head and they do this thing called first jobs which is a new program i believe which is really to help get recent alumni and recent grads connected with companies you know in the entertainment industry and basically you know get them their first job so that definitely looks uh really helpful (laughs) yeah that's so smart because it's it's kind of like an internship sort of experience, but also combined with work study, so you can make a little bit more cash than you would working effectively for free somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 for sure. Did you think about um, getting a, a more industry-focused, like non-work study job or an internship or anything like that, or were you just kind of like, I want to take this this first summer to to kind of continue going to school? Well, I did think about internships but um i don't know if you remember but i did one my first semester oh that's right yes mm -hmm. and my only thing is i kind of like the next internship i do i would like it to be a paid internship Mm -hmm. if possible just because basically if it's an unpaid internship i kind of have to pay to take it because i have to like pay for that course credit Um, so that was the thing. It's just been, it was kind of hard to find a paid internship. And I also like definitely wasn't proactive enough. And by the time I started thinking about the summer, it was already here. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You're so like caught up in yeah. <laughs> everything, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, so yeah, but I did want to take classes though. I had already, you know, wanted to do that. And I think a, a lot of us kind of stayed here over the summer to take courses. Yeah, I'll cool. tell you what, I love summer school classes. Like that mm-hmm. is my recommendation to at like any student. If you're sticking around, especially like, or if you have to pay for your, you know, lodging regardless, like mm-hmm. if, if moving home doesn't totally make financial sense, like the amount of one-on-one time you get with your professors and the, the fun and ease and the different vibe that summer school classes have is just so awesome. Mm-hmm. And here's a dumb question, but does do they cost money? Yeah, it's like the same. Like the way they do it at USC is you pay per credit. So it doesn't really matter, I guess, what time you take it. Okay. It's still like how many credits it is. Right. And so I guess my last question, and again, you're only, you're not even a year into school yet, but like, do you feel like people are starting to like kind of find their voice or like, are you... Like, mm. is there anyone that you're like, oh, this person is going to make it like they're they're just making stuff that is like so revolutionary. Oh, yeah, or... for sure. So we just did the class that we just took this spring was called 508. So every single one of us directed a short film, like all 60 of us. And we had a big screening at the end of the semester. And I was like low-key blown away I was just like wow we've grown so much since the first semester and there's like so many people who are talented in all different aspects and 
in terms of people having a voice, like there are definitely people like who have a voice not only in their directing and writing, but even in their cinematography, for example, where it's like, oh, I can tell you have like a distinct style or with like production design and stuff like that. So I do think that people are really like rising and I'm, you know, I'm just proud of our cohort because I feel like there's a ton of talented people and we're all going to make it. <laughs> but yeah, I think we're doing, I think we're doing great. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. I feel like there's, you always hear of people say like, oh, this guy or this girl, like when they were in film school, like you could already tell they were. Everybody mm. knew. Yeah. Mm. I would say in my experience, there's the, the person who is like, extra extra special that like everyone is talking about and that person will find early success and then everyone else will be kind of a surprised mixed bag Mm. do you know what i mean but i think that also some of that had to do with when i was in school really if you had money you could shoot on film Ah, and so now that that division isn't so great i wonder i'd be curious to see how people land yeah and i guess it's I don't even know if there's just one person that is like the superstar because I also think that we're all so diverse where maybe one person's really good at making like a very specific type of comedy, for example. So I feel like that also plays into it where maybe I could see certain people doing really well in like certain Mm -hmm. like areas and genres. Right. I guess I'm saying I went to school with John Chu, and, oh, well. and he was a genius immediately. <laughs> there, there you go. And Ryan Coogler, too. Didn't he have some of that? Yeah, well, I wasn't I there when he was there. Oh. I've, I've heard. I don't know. I just talked to someone this morning that went to school with Sam Esmail. They went to AFI together, and he was like, yeah, no one really expected. I mean, he, he right. was like, he was talented, but no one thought he was going to. No like, one was like, look out for Sam. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Going to have this like hit show and, you know direct like julia robertson and awesome i think filmmakers like john are so he's so charismatic Mm. and he was so focused and driven that it was like that was what was appealing about him and then also he had the chops Mm. whereas i think there's plenty of other filmmakers that aren't in the spotlight in the same way Mm -hmm. that um you know you wouldn't immediately be like oh man that that's the one. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes sense for sure. Um, well, cool. Well, thanks for giving us uh, your insight into kind of what's going on and for checking in. We are going to check in more uh, more often with you. Before we say goodbye, I believe you had an unpaid endorsement that you uh, you wanted to tell us about. Yeah. I. Well, first of all, I'm excited to be part of this section, <laughs> but <laughs> I have been watching Chernobyl on HBO and I think maybe one of you mentioned it before on the podcast but i really want to endorse the chernobyl podcast which is it goes into each episode with craig mazin the writer producer creator of the show and it's a really cool experience listening to it as like a film school student because not only do they go into the writing they go into some production aspects of it and, and I mean, they talk about how they visited Chernobyl and like how they made some decisions with like production design, cinematography. And it's just really cool because it's a real time, like you watch an episode, then you listen to a podcast and you're like, oh, so this is what happened. 
Oh, so. That's awesome. That's really cool. I didn't realize that they dive in, that Craig Mazin is on the podcast. You know, he's yeah. a professional podcaster. <laughs> he's one of the people that inspired this podcast. <laughs> Haven't you heard he doesn't make any money on this, Oren? <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense why he's such a good podcast guest. <laughs> sure, that's true. Yeah, yeah, he has a podcast called Script Notes that is probably oh, on like episode that. 500 or something. I think it is. Or 1,000. Th- <laughs> it's either four or 500. I know they um, just hit a milestone. I was just listening the other day. It's great. Um, well, cool. Well, thanks for the endorsement, um, and thanks for talking to us. And um, it's exciting that you're you're still in school and you're having fun <laughs> and you have summer plans. And yeah, that's awesome. Uh, let us know if you ever have anything shorts or anything that we should tweet yeah. about. Um, we'd love to do that. Yeah, I mean, hopefully the film I made this semester, I'm you know submitting it to places, so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, definitely we'll keep in the loop. And thanks for, you know, still wanting to catch up with me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I, the, the real-time evolution is the thing that makes it so special, you know? So thanks for making yourself available, too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for year three to be like, you hate this town. <laughs> you yeah. already like... Yeah. Had a DreamWorks deal that fell apart. Yeah. Why did your mind start chain smoking? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I really doubt it. But <laughs> um, cool. Okay, well, we will We'll check in with you later. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Thanks so much. Jemai. Oh, man, it's so, I'm so excited for Shamai. Sounds like she's had an incredible year, and she's looking forward to two more. I think we'll check back in with her uh, when she comes back from summer break and see what... Uh, See what the how the summer has treated her. Yeah, it's always interesting to be in film school and know that you're, you know, trying to aim for a career that is like so elusive. It's uh, stressful in all the fun ways. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, let's uh, hop in with Charlie Turrell. Hey, we're going to take a quick break to talk about Plot Devices, one of our sponsors. And we have Seth Worley, one of the creators of the Story Clock Workbook. So one of the cool things in the workbook is that you have an area to write a list of resources that you have. Yeah, we have a whole page devoted to resources and challenges. For example, my first big short film, Plot Device, of which we pulled the name from the company. When I sat down to write it, I thought about like, what do I have at my disposal to work with? I know that I have my parents' front yard, which is very photogenic and very free. I have my little brother who looks like Shia LaBeouf and will do anything I tell him to for cheap. And I know we have this yellow button from a previous shoot that we had done that came two days after the shoot and that we still wanted to get on screen. So I crafted a whole story around this button and this location and actor that I had available. Uh, On the flip side of that, you're going to encounter challenges on any film set. If not, you're in a dream world, a fantasy land. I personally believe that a filmmaker's voice is found in how they respond to the challenges that are presented to them. What kind of challenges did you have on plot devices? Rain, constant rain. Uh, Props broke normally when I would pick them up and subsequently (laughs) drop them. What's great about trying to anticipate problems ahead of time and breaking your sharks early on uh, is to try to avoid those challenges and just lean into them beforehand to go into the shoot anticipating the problems and having your creative solutions ahead of time so it can look like it was your ideal all along. Love yeah. It. Hey, it's going to rain a lot. Let's make the scene set in the rain. Yeah. Right? Is that the move? Or let's set it inside or let's put it in the garage mm-hmm. or let's... Let's lock it down and only get the coverage from these three angles. You know, for example, it rained during our zombie sequence. And because of that, I had to keep the camera under a tent and I had to keep the 
people out in the rain for only a limited amount of time. So we had shelters available really quickly for them to run to. But I also limited my coverage, which actually helped us because we were emulating this George Romero zombie aesthetic. And if I'd gotten a massive amount of coverage in that scene, it wouldn't have felt as authentic. But I was limited to having to stay in one place, having to use my zoom lens gratuitously. And I ended up helping the aesthetic of that sequence. Totally. Well, cool. If you want to find out more about plot devices and the various tools that they make to help you craft your story, check out plotdevices.co. This episode, we're giving away a Story Clock workbook along with a Get Richard Die writing pennant. Go to Twitter and tweet the most overused movie cliche that you secretly love and tag at plotdevices.co. For me, I don't mind a morning alarm clock scene. What time a character wakes up can really tell you a lot about them. I personally haven't used an alarm clock since I had a kid, so it's fun to see other people using them. Anyhow, if you don't want to wait to win, you can get 20% off your first order from Plot Devices right now with the code JSIPOD20 at checkout. Thanks, and we can't wait to see your tweets. Charlie Tyrrell, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Charlie Tyrrell of My Dead Dad's Porno Tapes and Broken Instruments, this, the soon-to-be-released, or actually probably released by now, documentary on Topic.com. Thanks, Charlie. Thank Broken you. Orchestra, right? Broken it, Orchestra, sorry. It's all the same. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, Charlie, I was so excited when we got the email about you potentially being on the show because I I really loved my dead dad's porno tapes. Uh, I saw it as a Vimeo staff pick. And so I was like, oh man, that would be so interesting to talk to that filmmaker because it's got such an awesome visual take on what could be in a, in less skilled hands, just a kind of personal essay. It's almost like a storytelling piece that you could put up at the moth but you add this extra layer of like found object animation that's really beautiful talk to us about how that kind of came to be how that became part of the style of the short sure well first off thanks for enjoying the film um and i want to just give a quick aside if you are at home and you can pause this podcast and watch uh my dead dad's porno tapes on vimeo you absolutely should do that right now yeah and it'll be in the show notes as well everyone um yeah so that you have some context but if you if you haven't watched it yet it's an amazing documentary autobiography like one that i've never seen before so you just got to watch it okay go ahead charlie tell us about how you came up with your style and apologies for any um, search results that pop up while you search for the title <laughs> of that film. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, well, good luck. Yeah, so that film was something that I knew I wanted to make for a while, mostly born out of kind of, you know, among other things, this fear that I would one day lose the memory of my dad. So shaping that, that kind of turned into, you know, trying to chase down objects that belong to him and then, in chasing down those objects, I found the porno tapes and kind of as I got this pile, I started to look at it and realize like, okay, this, this pile of stuff I have doesn't really say who he was, It, but some of the objects trigger memories and, you know, point in the right direction a little bit. So the only real way to kind of, for me to take that was to, you know, translate into the medium in which I work, which is film. And from there, you know, that was still, you know, years before the film was actually done. So from there, it was a matter of kind of recruiting the right people, getting, you know, working with team members that I trust and work with frequently and, you know, allowing th- the thing to shape and become what it became. And as far as, as you say, being kind of seen in this um, objective way, you know, that was kind of necessary for, you know, not only my process in the film, but also my process and, you know, 
resolving and unpacking those feelings I had about my dad. Um, it's in the third person, you know, narration because that was the only real way that we could write it. We couldn't write in the first person because, you know, not only the dread of myself knowing that I would have to narrate it one day, but it also, it, it just kind of made the whole process feel weird and like trying to talk about these things and it just seemed so narcissistic and navel gazy and that wasn't the film that I wanted to make and that's not really the type of person that I am. So, you know, I consider myself more of a narrative filmmaker ahead of a documentary filmmaker, even though my short documentaries are the ones that have kind of, you know, had a bit more success and gone out there. But with that, you know, I work with more narrative structure and, mm -hmm. you know, non-fiction yeah, filmmaking. Yeah. Your docs are like super cinematic. I was just talking to a documentary filmmaker yesterday. I was like, have you seen my dead dad's porno tapes? And he's like, yeah, you know, loved it. And then I told him a little bit about your next short and how, I mean, you're, you know, it, there's just so much camera work and planning and like, it seems like shot listing and doing all these things that I think you would kind of start doing in a documentary and then quickly go off course from. But in your work, it's like so organized, you know, so planned in a way that a documentary usually isn't. Right. Yeah, so well, formal. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that because I always feel like it's so unplanned and even our animations, um, you know, we kind of jokingly refer to them as um, jazzimations because a lot of them we kind of just have the objects and we have the materials there and we have the studio time and we just kind of make it up as we go. Um, yeah, do you, um, do you find that you're doing the animation in sequence or that you're kind of finding it in the edit? You know, because just for the listeners, it's like there's a lot of, you know, top-down photography of objects, right? Right. So it could be something where you... You know, do you know the sequence of the the tiny little button to the metal to the driver's license to the wallet and so on, or, yeah. or is it just kind so, of so the floppy disk? It's my we <laughs> we kind of um we edit as we go in the animating. You know, we start out with a rough idea, um, and then from there we kind of build and see what we have. I mean, for me, a lot of the way I've worked with animation animators is it's defined by its kind of creative limitations and, you know, its budget limitations. Okay, we have an animator for this many days, we have this much studio, and in the case of my Dead Dad's promo tapes, we have this many objects. So let's try and exploit what we have as best we can um, and utilize it in the best way that we can. And there's only so much thinking you can do ahead of time. There were some shots that we knew what we wanted to land on or objects we wanted to include or you know, rough ideas of images that we wanted to show. But really when we're there and it's starting on a blank frame, we kind of just look around and see what we have and go, okay, well, let's start this. And we kind of run through a couple tests. And then after we get the first couple shots behind us, that's when we kind of know our um, mm -hmm. definition and our scope of how big these animations are going to be and, you know, where we're going to carry them and kind of get our bandwidth figured out. And by the time we're done animating, we can tell the editor, okay, this is the sequence of shots, but at the start, we don't, yeah, we don't necessarily know what that sequence is going to be. We have, we, again, we have a rough idea and we have kind of, um, you know, a plan B, fail safe minimum. These are the shots that we need just, just to have a story, but then we try and, you know, embellish those and make them better make them stronger as we go. Yeah. A little bit of improvisation. So then do you have the, um, the sequencing already done? Do you have the, uh, the voiceover and all of those pieces laid out or no? 
Yeah, well, yeah. So in, usually if we can, that's ideal. Um, that's not always the case, but at the very least, it's good to have, you know, a temp voiceover in there, an animation that's mixing footage, live action or archival with, you know, just empty slugs. Animation will go here. And then, you know, you you input them as you go and you see what needs to be shorter or longer. Sometimes you have to redo some animations because, you know, they just don't feel right once you place them. Um, and then there are other animations that you have to scrap. So it, it, it's kind of this game where, you know, it's, it's filmmaking stress, but it's pretty peaceful too, because we aren't talking a full set of, you know, 30 people. It's myself and a team of, you know, one to two animators like um, Martha or Phil. And, you know, we just kind of, try and keep it on a leash and dial it in as we get further. But, um, you know, I try and associate myself with people that, um, you know, really welcome creative challenges. And a lot of what that is is kind of what I mentioned before, like, okay, here's our tools and here's our environment. And here's kind of, you know, the maximum resources we have. And let's make these work as best we can. Like Chet, my cinematographer, he's always referred to as, um, a Swiss army knife because you can give them a package truck and you can give them the best camera and the best lenses and it will look great. But if you're just giving him, you know, a 10 year old, whatever, and three lights, he'll just go, okay, like, you know, I'll make this work. It, it, it won't be all that it could, but that might be better for this project if we are limited in this way, because we aren't going to be losing all that time on, um, you know, playing production and, playing giant setups where it might not be necessary for the story. Right. I, I love that phrase, playing production. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Um, I think something that's interesting is like, if you watch the short doc, it's like, I mean, it feels like you made it about you, about your family. It's like, it feels like everything is like coming out of your brain. Yeah. But it's literally a, like a plot point that it's the end card says directed by Charlie, Charlie Tyrrell, you know? Yeah, but then when you talk about making it, you just keep you keep using the word we. Like we wrote it, you know, the editor did this, the DP did that. Like, um, how did you like take something that seems like so personal and so like of your voice, which is what I'm assuming it is, and you know, get other people to buy into it, especially the well, writing part. Luckily, this wasn't it wasn't a hard sell, and I mean, again, um, associating myself with you know, the kind of people I mentioned before, you know, we we're usually all happy to work together again. So in this case, it was a team of people that I had worked with previously. We do have a good working relationship and, you know, it was an idea that I knew I wanted to make, but I thought I was making it alone and quietly and, you know, maybe show it to my siblings. But when I kind of started kicking the idea around to some of these, you know, fellow filmmakers, that was when people were like, oh, yeah, you need to make that. And it wasn't just like a gawky kind of, haha, that's kind of silly, even like maybe like a little bit kind of, um, you know, enticing for the wrong reasons, but, you know. Salacious, the, the, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, but these people were like, no, that's a story that should be told and you shouldn't hold back. And one of the kind of early people was um, my co-writer, Joseph Beebe, who's, you know, he's a colleague that I know from film school. I've worked with him quite a few times and he's worked all over. He's worked, you know, as an editor, as just a straight writer, director. So all this is a way of saying that he has a very good sense of story and a very good sense of structure. 
And what we did at the very beginning was he just interviewed me. We just met up, he brought his phone, recorded a conversation where it was like, okay, what do you want this film to be? What are kind of some anecdotes or story beats you want to hit? Just tell me everything. So I just kind of unloaded all these stories and all these anecdotes. And there were ones that I told him that I felt this is def this is the ending of the film, or this is a very important moment in this film, and this is something that we're going to include. But luckily, he has the ability to look at it, you know, completely as an outsider and just go, no, let's focus on this. This is what's interesting. And then from there, it just becomes a back and forth of shaping it, refining it. You know, I think we went through 30 drafts of that narration script. Um, there's so many stories that we didn't include. One's that at the beginning we felt like we weren't going to use that ended up being so heavily featured. So it's really, you know, it's half luck and half just kind of curating your team, right? You, you hope that you get the right people to work with, but you can work with anyone if you put the effort into that relationship. And if you get a sense of each other and get a sense of, you know, tone and style and really shape it like a, a film at the end of the day is more of a collective body than any one person or one filmmaker. Right. Yeah, and, yeah, um, absolutely. and even with this film that is completely personal, uh, I feel like I can't take credit for the project. Right. Like I, I steered and I, you know, recruited and knew what I wanted it to be, but you know, I didn't dictate every little bit and try and leave room for, you know, Michael Barker, the editor to add his touches. And he added so much that again, stuff I didn't even see, um, from the beginning and, you know, Julie and, and everyone else just kind of, it, it's good when you have that, when you have a team of people that can all not just be work for hire, but they can put a little bit of themselves into the true, film as well. True collaborators. Yeah. 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 Well, Charlie, what I love so much about this is that it feels like in a certain sense, this film is a culmination of, uh, you know, a lifetime worth of experiences and meditation on what it is to be a part of your family and an artist and a collaborator, right? Like these are all mm -hmm. relationships that it sounds like you've had for a long time. So maybe let's back out a little bit. I'd love to learn a, a little bit more contextually just about who you are as a filmmaker, how you kind of came to the process. Uh, give us kind of the big picture of um, how you came to filmmaking? Well, in like ninth grade, they make you do an aptitude test. And no, um, it was, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to work in the arts of some kind since, since, you know, probably elementary school. It was something that I had something of a skill for, something that I was comfortable in working in. And, you know, maybe superficially, it was, I didn't know any other friends that wanted to do that as well so I was able to kind of feel like I had my own thing and mm -hmm. let yeah, that develop the filmmaking kid and yeah. you grew up in Canada right yep yep uh, I grew up about an hour outside of Toronto um but that being said you know we didn't have um like a video camera growing up I didn't get to really play around with filmmaking until I went into university like in high school we had a communications class and we were able to do you know some kind of TV broadcast style projects and a couple short films, but a lot of that was more so just kind of goofing off. Um, and what about um, so post post college? Like, were mm -hmm. you a working filmmaker? Had when did you start thinking about documentary? And how did we? 
Did you have a background in animation? How did all of these different skills kind of come together? I mean, that's a good question. I I've never didn't have a background in animation other than, you know, a little bit of messing around. I do have a bit of a background in graphic design though. Um, in high school, oh, that, I would be, sense. yeah, I would be able to, um, in high school, I was able to go to like most local concerts for free because I designed a lot of band posters and concert posters for, you know, a few of the venues. Um, and as a result, they're like, well, we can't pay you for the work, but we can give you free tickets to whatever shows you want to go to kind of thing. So it, it felt like a fair trade off at the time. And, and it was kind of like, put this text on it, but other than that, do whatever you want. So, you know, I was appreciative of that and, you know, lets you flex a little bit of creative muscle while you actually, you know, get to walk down the street and see something that you did like on a telephone pole and then it's gone two days later. But, you know, so that, that was kind of my first real make something with an expectation that people will see it. And from there, I developed my sense of kind of, you know, imagery I like to work with, balance and tone of the imagery, and also, you know, sense of humor in it. Because at the time, like a lot of these were kind of, you know, hardcore and punk shows and stuff. And people were using some pretty serious subject matter, you know, you know, anti-war, anti-military stuff. And it was kind of more, you know, in tune to my sensibilities to you know, be a bit more sardonic with it and put a little bit of humor in the obscene. And, you know, that, that was an early development I didn't really revisit until, yeah, I, I ended film school because, you know, film school, it, it was great. And there's a lot of collaborators, like, collaborators I worked with there that I still work with to this day, like Joseph. Where did you go? Chet, uh, Ryerson University in Toronto. Okay. Cool. Um, and, you know, you do your assignments and you do your stories and, you know, felt good about maybe 10 or 20 percent of the work I made there but again I, I hadn't really worked in this medium there are a lot of people in our course who had worked as PAs or you know did have jobs relating to film so I felt like a little bit of catching up was required so after school basically you know did the traditional route of starting as a PA and you know working up and up. Uh, then I was working as an assistant editor for a while and kind of had this realization that, you know, I could work like that forever. I could work, you know, on or offset, you know, at whatever production level, you know, job security was fine because I was, you know, proficient at what I was doing there. But, oh man, I'm not making my own stuff on the side. So I kind of stopped everything in its place, took the money that I had made and the money that I saved and, you know, kind of figured, okay, well, I'm going to try and reinvest this money into my own projects and, you know, do a lot of the freebies and favors and recruiting friends to volunteer on your shoots and, um, you know, working on it piece by piece, uh, experimenting in, you know, more short films, some branded stuff, some little animated stuff. And, and was, uh, my dead dad porno tape was that the uh your big break would you describe it as is that um, like the most attention you've received thus, thus far or did you have other kind of before that in 2015 in i made a film called i thought i told you to shut up which was um about a comic book artist david boswell and his um his character reed fleming the world's toughest milkman so we premiered at south by southwest with that film that was my first kind of you know festival film thing that 
I got emails from people about, um, and that was kind of, yeah, the first one, but it was nothing compared to kind of the, the circulation and attention that uh, Dead Dad's Porno Tapes has gotten, that's for sure. And I see here on your <clears throat> on your Vimeo that I thought I told you to shut up is narrated by Jonathan Demi. Yeah. How did you swing that? Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that David Wayne does my Dead Dad Dead Dad's Porno Tapes. So yeah, like... Tell That's us about the both move. of those. You got to yeah. get famous narrators. So <laughs> yeah, good, exactly. Man. And yeah, oh, how man. did that happen? Well, Jonathan Demi was uh, a fan of Reed Fleming, the comic book character. And, you know, it took some time, but filtering through IMDb Pro and finding the right manager and person to reach out to. And, you know, eventually, if you can get them to read the email, usually the answer is yes. Like, but you have so many layers to get through. Um, Demi was great. Uh, it's too bad he's gone now, but, uh, I, I was able to see that film with him, um, at the Brooklyn Film Festival. So that was a cool experience. And, and did you, sorry. So once you get Jonathan Demi to say yes, I guess on account that he's like a fan of the person of Reed Fleming, the person you're making your documentary about, um, do you record him or do you just say like, how, how does that work? Just, like, uh, yeah, yes. I rec- we we drove down to New York, and it was myself and um, sound recordist and uh, Joseph actually came, and you know we had the script, and I think it was you know when it's condensed, it's like a, two pages, so you know he was able to give some of his time, and we just went to his office and got it out. And then, so what? What's the story with David Wayne? Well, with David, um, like I mentioned before, it was we wrote the. The narration in the third person you know as a tool to get me out of my own head and make it not feel awkward as i was working on it but then after a while we really started to like the fact that was in the third person and it felt right and it, it gave this quality of the film that we want to preserve so we knew okay well we should try and recruit a narrator and you know recruiting a known name certainly helps a short film and we had a mutual friend that uh knew david wayne so, you know, the dots all connected and he helped us out and did it and it was great. We did it in an afternoon, same kind of thing. Um, but what was so great about David and why we kind of jumped at the opportunity to work with him was because, you know, we wanted someone that could do sincere. It, it, is, it is a fairly heavy narration, but, you know, we wanted someone that has a good tone of humor and a good sense of, you know, how to use it and how to read for it. And, you know, he was just perfect for that because, you know, it wasn't just, okay, this part's funny and this part's sad. It was, it's the nuanced kind of segues and in-betweens that he does. And yeah, he was just brilliant. Yeah. What great casting. So smart. Because I I think the other thing that I love, especially about the, the Wayne casting is that like, you're right. I think you, obviously you think of David Wayne as like a purely comedic voice, right? He's so mm-hmm. zany and, you know, his his body of work would suggest purely <laughs> that he's just interested in comedy, right? Like absurdist comedy, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think there must be, that must have been appealing to him to be able to do a, a slightly more dramatic side of his of his own persona as well. You know, like there's that moment of like, wait a minute, is that David Wayne? You know, exactly. And that's why I love about it, because uh, you can see that there's some people that you can tell who knows, like some people right away are like, oh, fuck, that's David Wayne. And 
and the other people isn't that they they don't know his work but they just don't recognize him for that right, right? they right. don't recognize him for that tone so it, it probably was maybe you know something that looking back maybe it did help him you know come on board yeah yeah, yeah. and i think is like again low impact requests from famous mm-hmm. people right so it's like it's a creatively appealing you know you had a little bit of um cachet right like you had a short at, at south by already uh the script obviously is really powerful and great sorry if you said this already but did you have any sort of like uh anything to show him beyond what what you just emailed like what what did he uh, see to say yes to it i'm trying to remember if we did send him anything i i think we maybe had a clip i, I now that I, now that i try to remember i think we had the ekg sequence done like the heartbeat sequence done for the film so mm-hmm. you know he had a sense that it was you know objects on a white background um and i can't remember if the temp narration was on there or not but whether whether he saw it or not and that's what sold him on it you know we we never really got into that um, sure sure but i i guess it's nice just to um... For people to see like oh this is going to be really polished and really personal and really mm-hmm. beautiful and these guys know what they're doing basically i'm not wasting my time <laughs> yeah and, right. and si- since the film has been completed and you know got out there he's been so supportive and you know came out to a couple of the screenings that were in la and um yeah he's it's, it's a great ally on the film yeah well i'm sure it doesn't hurt him when he's like in a sundance short also right yeah, well, actually, that was cool because his feature was premiering at Sundance. Um, so we were both there with movies. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I feel like a lot of, you know, a lot of our listeners and people in our business, like, they try to approach, like, a celebrity. They're like, you know, you're only going to need to film for three days in Puerto Rico. Just come with us. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you say no? Um, but then you look at, like, kind of your approach and, like, literally, it's, like, almost impo- impossible for them to say no, you know? You're approaching people that you have kind of some connection to. You're asking so little of them and you're showing them why what you're asking them to do is going to be artistic. Yeah, I'm coming to their house in the middle of the afternoon for 30 minutes, like, and then I'll be out of there. No equipment, no other bodies. Um, and with a huge impact. You know? Well, you don't know that at the time, though. Sure, sure, sure. But I'm in terms of like... But they're... they're um, the like potential footprint on the project, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, it's like yeah. He's the voice... Of the movie in so many ways. Oh yeah, he he makes the film. As far as I'm concerned, um, any one part in this project is gone and, and it falls apart. I think. So you got the success of uh, my dead dad's porno tapes, right? And that's kind of making waves and you know doing the huge festivals. Life is pretty good, and all of a sudden you find yourself with like a hit documentary. Um, how did that lead us to Broken Orchestra? Well. Dead Dad's Porn Tapes hasn't necessarily directly led to one job. It kind of validated me is the best way I can explain it. You know, reach out to people or try to work with people. And normally the email just gets ignored. But because I now that thing on my CV, people are like, oh, okay, like, sure. I can, it makes it easier to kind of open doors, but you still have to work at those doors. Um, But Topic, actually, when we were at Sundance, uh, Mona, um, who's one of the EPs on Broken Orchestra, she met up with Julie and myself and kind of, you know, explained what they were all about. And it's kind of like, okay, here's here's the card now. Like, you know, when you have something, reach out to us. So shortly after that, we ended up doing um, a small series with them called The Book of Dog, which is, you know, a four-part 
web series about the way that, you know, humans have basically like bastardized certain dog breeds by inbreeding them and overbreeding them and kind of leaving them with all kinds of, you know, medical problems as a result of that. And actually on that one, we had a really great cast. We had um, Janine Garofalo, um, Louis Black, uh, Lucy Punch, and Fred Armisen. Um, so that was nice. And, you know, same kind of thing. Just reach out and email and hope that they say yes and, and all that. And then, you know, from there, after that, we've just kind of kept in touch. And I came, became aware of the Broken Orchestra and you know, kind of put a treatment together, sent it to them. And, you know, after a little bit of review, they were like, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And when you say you became aware of Broken Orchestra, is like once you're kind of like on the scene as a documentary filmmaker, you have a few docs, you had one at South by one at Sundance, are people like emailing you like, hey, I got a documentary. No, nothing like that. A lot of um, kind of people, friends making the lame joke, like, "Uh aha, you should make a film about that, which funny, and it's kind of whatever. (laughs) But um, I'm never really actively seeking documentary subjects. You know, you kind of just have to follow your own interest. And then if you find something great, if not, I still work in narrative film for the most part. So I'll just stay in that space. But for the Broken Orchestra, I first read about it, you know, just in an online article. And, you know, it, it appealed to me. Um, I didn't consider it as something I'd want to make a film about right away, but this was just before Christmas, and my um, sister-in-law is a violin player and a violin teacher and piano player and piano teacher. But, you know, they live on the other side of the country, so sending mailing Christmas gifts can always be a little bit tricky. And I found out through this program that you could adopt instruments, and you could adopt them in the name of someone else. So, you know, I figured, okay, that's a suitable and nice Christmas gift for her, and, you know, did that. And you know, went over well. But after that, I found myself, I kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking about the story and thinking about, you know, visually the things that I could do with that story. And, you know, this was right around the time that we were premiering at Sundance. So I reached out to Robert Blackson from Symphony for a Broken Orchestra and, you know, just let him know who I was, what I was about, sent him, you know, my most recent film, which was Dead Dad's Porno Tapes, and just asked if he'd be open to it. And luckily he was. And, you know, the relationship developed from there. And then so your idea was I have like a I have a pitch basically to do a documentary about this topic. I'm going to bring it to topic and see if they want to finance it. Pretty much. Yeah, it was it was kind of more so we finished the book of dog with topic and they're like, what else do you have? So, you know, we sent them a list of things and Broken Orchestra was one of them. Well, so I like love, love, love the visual, the visuals of Broken Orchestra the way you basically kind of weave these documentary recordings into like a cinematic backdrop. Like, how did you come up with that idea? Well, from the start, it was something that we knew that we wanted to make with animation in some kind of format that, you know, was a bit uh, less traditional in nonfiction films. To get where we actually got to with, you know, the camera wandering through these hallways with the old busted TVs on AV carts, you know, that actually came during the process of making the films and being down in Philadelphia and being in some schools and doing the interviews. It was... That's so fascinating to me, Charlie, because that is... A, it's, it's so, so intentional, right? <laughs> it's, it's so intentional and so evocative, right? But also it's like so much of the film right like the the main 
And just for, for listeners who haven't had the chance to see the film yet, you know, most of it is cameras kind of drifting through these different classroom spaces and the TVs, like these old tube TVs, playing interview footage as we kind of glide past them. So it's, it is, you know, maybe the primary mechanic of the film. And so to hear that it's kind <laughs> of... That just wasn't the, the pitch. That was, yeah, that it was just this kind of like inspiration point for you, like in mid-process is so fascinating and so inspiring. Right. Well, um, I mean, I knew that we would have these interviews and it's like I, I, I look at things kind of and can compartmentalize them. I'm like, okay, if I just have interviews, I'll find a format. I'll make something work. So you know, I knew that we would be able to make that footage work for us. And to get where we got, you know, it just, it became what felt right as, as the project went on. And, you know, a lot of that, like I said, was being in these old high schools, because I haven't, I haven't been in high school since I was in high school, you know, over a decade ago. And just the experience, and a few of us shared this, you know, the, we were just a small team of, um, you know, four down there, but you know, we were all kind of like, whoa, this is, you know, flashbacks and nostalgia and all that. And, you know, it's kind of incredible that we can be, you know, in a high school over a thousand miles away from where we grew up, but it's still the exact same. You know, the only thing that we noticed that was different about American high school is that you guys have um, metal detectors. <laughs> Not everyone. <laughs> Not well, yeah, this, this, yeah, this particular high school, too, um, sure. it, it did. And, but that being said, um, I was relating to, found myself relating to the story even more being there and interviewing our subjects and they're all so compassionate and so, you know, they aren't just involved in, you know, the project and their community, they, they really believe in what this project did. So, you know, I was kind of, you know, being more and more sold on it every day. So I knew that because I was feeling that in that environment of a school that maybe trying to replicate that would be something worth entertaining and we kind of as we uncovered it we realized okay like if we put this in schools and you know we make that the main backdrop of the piece then people watching and listening to the story they aren't just going to you know hear these subjects and you know abc of the story it might help kind of put them back in their old school and their old environments and you know empathize a little bit with the story that's going on because they'll be able to relate to it from their own experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so it's so beautiful and so evocative. I, you know, Charlie, I have a couple technical mm-hmm. questions. Can we jump into that? So, um, first of all, how many TV are all the TV carts real, or did you have to do some cloning? Because there's a couple of instances where it's like, oh, there's a lot of TV carts here. Are you adding any things in post? And then also, are I suppose you're superimposing the uh, perfectly timed interviews. Perfectly timed interviews have to be done in post. Oh right? no, it's all real. Oh man, no way! All the interviews are playing the t- on. Those yeah, TVs. you can see. We didn't try to hide it, but you can see all the wires connecting the TVs. Um, we are trying to find a way how to basically play footage back on multiple TVs at one time from one source, and the only real way that we could do that was actually, you know, the old school coaxial cable. Um, mm-hmm. So we had hundreds and hundreds of feet of that, and we were running it all from, you know, a central kind of laptop playing the footage back at one time. Um, so there's no VCR. There's no least. VCR. It's just all we had to find this, you know, 
a converter that went from you know a laptop to HDMI, then a converter that went from HDMI to RCA, and then a converter that went from RCA to coaxial, and then coaxial splitters. Like that could split it eight different ways kind of thing. So and cool, we, man. So was the the footage like degraded in that way or did you also degrade it on top? Um, of I mean, it naturally degrades itself. There's some static and whatnot on some of the TVs because on in some cases, you know, just by the length of cable that you're running, it naturally loses its quality. And then, you know, hate to say it, but some of those kind of staticky blips and stuff are in there to kind of hide jump cuts and whatnot and kind of bury some of our, <laughs> no. bury some of our cuts. That is yeah. the classic documentary filmmaker There we tool. go. Until Adobe put out their morph, what's the morph, the cut. morph cut? Yeah. Yeah. That still looks too weird to me though. Like I, I'd rather it look intentionally bad than like awkwardly weird. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Then have somebody's like uh, alien takeover of their face for a yeah. few frames. Or it's like the blinks is what you can see. Like you can see like somebody's eyelids don't open. They just like turn into eyeballs again. <laughs> yeah. So cool. I love that. Um, <laughs> That's an idea for a music video. There you go. All morph cuts. Done. Um, Charlie, did you, did you light those scenes? You said there was a team of four down there. How, what's the um, well, camera Well, we, um, when I say team of four, I mean um, that was down in Philadelphia shooting the interviews. So it was myself. Julie Baldassi, the producer, um, Chet Tillicani, the cinematographer, and then Joseph Beebe, who was, you know, again, the co-writer on this, but he came down um, to do sound for us. Um, you know, everyone's really playing kind of the jack-of-all-trades game um, on any of my productions. Um, and actually, Chet and Julie jokingly referred to most of my shoot, or like the school shoot, which we shot locally. We shot this um, in the same town I grew up in, actually. Um, and when we were there and it was all set up and we had a team of about, you know, I think 25 to pull this off over two days. Uh, yeah, Chet just kind of jokingly and hopefully lovingly just said that we, that they were all my enablers. Um, cause once we saw kind of this monster that we had planned out on paper with, you know, very modest testing, um, that was when we were like, oh, okay, this is, this is a big thing that we're doing here. Yeah, so you had to edit all the interviews ahead of time and time them out and then figure out how to film those interviews as they're playing back on TVs in this hallway. Exactly. And our steady cam operator, Alan, had to cue his movements from one TV to another by memory. He had to, you know, in, in the rehearsal, like, okay, now, now Rosalind's talking and I know that when she says, you know, potato, I have to start my move kind of thing. Right. So. And these are long takes too. It's not like what? Yeah, what would you say? Your it's not ten seconds. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're they're thirty, forty, over a minute sometimes. I think our longest is like three minutes or something. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so wild. Um, I have a question about how you do the stop motion animation pieces. Mm -hmm. um, so in in your film, you know, it's all about uh, the evolution and lifespan of. Um, musical instruments and so you do these beautiful pieces where we're in school hallways and you'll see a clarinet kind of almost unfurl itself or grow out of like small compartmentalized pieces so it starts at a reed and then it goes to a mouthpiece and then it kind of builds out from there mm -hmm. how did you do those shots uh that's the same that's the same animator martha grant in the same technique that we did in dead dead's porn tapes it's called um boil swapping which is using different objects or different pieces of a of an object and sequencing them in a way that, you know, 
has this rhythm, but it also plays with scale and it helps for transitions. I mean, if you want to get from a flute to a cello, there's a whole bunch of different instruments and parts in between those two sizes that you can use to fill up the frames in between to, you know, make it look like a flower blooming or make it look like a heartbeat. And they're in 3D space in this case. So like, mm -hmm. I think uh, with my dead dad's porno tapes, it's, it's a little more straightforward in that you're kind of just shooting on white surfaces so you see how you would just kind of swap out those objects but when it's floating in a hallway how does that mechanism work i owe a lot of credit there to um the compositor and collaborator of mine for i feel like it's almost a decade now kyle fowler because you know we shot the instruments and we just shot them over green and you know and is a person holding them up? Or? No, they're all rigged because, you know, sometimes they have to stand there for, you know, minutes to, you know, an hour. Um, so you've got a green screen in the space with like a C-stand or something. Yeah, with rigging that has to be kind of rotoed out or painted out. Um, but yeah, so we shot these instruments just over green and, you know, sent the idea to Kyle and sent some of our kind of um, stills as we went to Kyle, like, is this okay? Can you composite this? And he was like, yep, like, don't worry about it. And, you know, we we had all the material and it was, you know, it, it was pretty rough to shoot, actually, because the instruments weren't super cooperative. I mean, a lot of them are so reflective that they were picking up green spill and whatnot. So, sure. you know, yeah, for every... Like a classic example of like what not to do is like to film like a tuba or like a saxophone in front of a green screen. Oh, yeah. yeah it was a tons of like totally tiny, disappear. tiny little keys, super reflective. But you also... Like copper, which is kind of green. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. right. And, Brass, and yeah. so, I mean, Kyle is really the one who could say that because, you know, any of the shiny instruments, you could probably key about you know, 60% of it, but the rest had to be rotoed. And then you had to roto that spill and, you know, desaturate or change it into a different color individually. And we're talking, you know, one frame out of hundreds of frames. So he right, had to do right. it pretty intense work. And then on top of all that, his compositing of the shots is beautiful. It's great. And, you know, it looks like they actually are in the environments. It, it, it's lucky because it is a bit fantastical that it doesn't have to be entirely believable that it's really there in that physical space but despite that he was still able to make it look um very very convincing i feel yeah, i find yeah i couldn't tell if you did it in camera or not and i do vfx also so there you go like really well done we passed the so test you were you were on a stage basically to shoot all the green yeah then, just yeah. just out of you know we had like a four by four tabletop um set up in my little studio here and uh, it was about five days of animating. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty hefty. Well, um, my kind of final question is, I, you live in Canada, which is probably a little bit different than the U.S. in terms of like funding for the arts and things of that nature. But I'm curious, like how does this type of work, can you make a living like doing this type of work or do you have to like supplement it with commercial work and like kind of what's, what's your plan for like moving forward in terms of your documentary work and well I mean uh, it's real I was having this conversation today I mean I don't make much you know I'm not really ashamed to say I don't make much money doing what I do I, I live off you know a very very modest amount based on you know taking on whatever projects I can and saving and you know not spending my money on stupid shit that I don't need um, I have very cheap rents and you know I, I just I don't want for much like the thing that I want for kind of in life is 
you know, work-wise is I just want to continue filmmaking. So as long as I can maintain, maintain that, I'm good. Um, as far as like work for hire stuff here, commercials and whatnot, I, I don't do a lot of that stuff. I mean, I feel like, you know, a lot of the work I do when it's done, it makes sense. But in a treatment, in a pitch, like, fuck no. Like it, it, it makes no <laughs> sense to anyone. And it's always so kind of eyebrow raising. And I've been turned down from, you know, for, for every one thing that I do, I've been turned down from probably a hundred different treatments that, that didn't go ahead and and like hats off to topic for kind of you know trusting us and you know giving us uh space and real estate to work and um yeah it's it's like on paper my ideas all sound terrible i find that so interesting because if you just like go around your vimeo page like if you look at the dc mike mo signature shoe video or you look at your the vans randomizer switch or even the quaker state donald or the weekend at bernie's spot like you have such a distinct style and it's like so kind of easy to look at. Like I'm surprised that you can't just be like, see what we did for, you know, DC shoes. Like we're going to do something similar, but for whatever, you know, you're. Yeah, it's tricky. And, and all, all those spots that you just mentioned, like those are all spec spots. Those are all just no things, way. things that we all just did for fun. The um, Quaker State one? Yeah, that was a MoFilm one. So uh, I don't know if I don't know if MoFilm's still around, but they kind of present briefs to you know new filmmakers. Um, and I think you know we had a budget of like three thousand dollars or something for that. Um, oh wow! See, but, I would hire you in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, I mean, unless you're pitching against me, in which case, I'd there you go. Probably yeah. still hire you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You know, if the opportunity comes up, I'm around. <laughs> um, well, that's cool. Well, so premiering at Sundance and stuff that doesn't does, did that not lead into like big agencies contacting you or like a lot of jobs being offered to you no not really I mean like I said it, it validates when I'm reaching out to someone um it's good to have kind of there for someone when they you know if they do look back on me they they see that and it kind of helps jump me in the pile a little bit but I mean, there are so many talented filmmakers in the world that, you know, can do stuff for even cheaper than I can. So it's a bit of a race and a battle. And I'm kind of turning more into the person that's opting to, you know, quietly do my own thing with my collaborators, um, you know, slower than trying to constantly produce, produce and produce and, you know, land big contracts. It's just it's a time in my life where I can do that. I can afford to do that. Um, that it's kind of, you know, it, it's the place that's fun right now. Well, Charlie, this has been so awesome. I have one more question. Sure. Uh, so we got introduced to you through uh, a really formidable PR company. Um, did you, is that a topic thing or was that something that you based off of your experience with Sundance and South by and all that? Uh, decided to hire or how how did you become um, associated with the PR company oh yeah that's topic thing topic um, yeah, that's what I figured yeah they, they've got some you know we we don't know much about what's behind the curtain at topic I mean we know the people that we deal with there um, but we we kind of we're kind of in the dark all else some of that's being you know so displaced from them by being up in Canada mm-hmm. uh, but the other side of it is, you know, there have been a few times that we've been on these projects that, you know, we've needed some kind of bailout, you know, like, oh, we lost this person who was supposed to do this. And, you know, 
we relate to them like, hey, here's a bit of a hiccup. And they just come in and save the day with, you know, some giant kind of help or like kind of mm-hmm. the the person that you would expect you would never even bother asking because they would want a million dollars. And they have this crazy kind of resource pool and um, it, it's great um, when needed, right? Um, it, it's just all helpful and it's all the support and, you know, there's some great people there. Well, great. Uh, so, Charlie, uh, I think um, if you have a few more minutes, we'd love to hop into our unpaid endorsements. Sure. Unpaid endorsements. So this is not a re-endorsement, but we had some guests in the past, Jocelyn DeBauer and Don Luby, and they told us about this, like, the way that they write their screenplays is they do something called deep work, where they just, like, turn everything off, and I'd kind of heard about this concept, and then I listened on this other podcast, The Moment, with Brian Koppelman. So he had this writer on named Cal Newport, who was talking about these books he had written, uh, and one of them was called Deep Work, and I guess he had kind of invented that term, and it's just a book about how successful people like manage to do like three to four hours of like super deep concentrated work that people rarely do nowadays because they're like on email they're on that your brain literally is like addicted to like checking your email or checking social media or doing anything but working and so most people like according to this guy like are just are doing what he calls shallow work which is just like the bare minimum to get by on a job you know even if it's art even if it's writing if it's Like, no one is just, like, letting their brain just, like, simmer in the project, you know, that they need to concentrate on. And so this book is about, A, half of it is him convincing you that this is a real thing, that deep work really exists. And then the other half is his kind of rules of how to get to deep work. I've only read the intro. I just got it yesterday. But I'm really enjoying it so far. So Deep Work by Cal Newport. And I will report back after I finish reading it uh, if it's... If it's all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, just um, don't read your text messages while you're reading it, Oren. I honestly was like this morning I got a phone call and an email like while I was trying to read the intro. And I was like, damn, I cannot even read a book. Um, <laughs> anyhow, um, that's awesome. deep work. Deep work. Sounds great. Uh, Charlie, do you have anything? I've got nothing. Um, thank you so much for having me, though. This has been a blast. Hey, no no problem. <laughs> See, well, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, are you watching anything or reading anything or any uh, YouTube videos that like have really inspired you? I mean, I'm you? trying not to. I, I'm on a deadline to finish um, a feature film script. So gotcha. it's kind of weird that you talk about this deep work stuff because that's exactly like like the deadline is scary. Like it's very, very scary close. And I'm very, very scary not done much. <laughs> so so I'm finding that to be my limit is about, you know, two to three hours a day where disconnect the internet turn off my phone, just completely, you know, computer and the and the um, script software, and that's it, and just focus, 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 and then, you know, bane out a few pages, and it, it, when you can look at it like that, it helps so much more than, like, looking at it as a giant task, just piece by piece. Right. I find I have to put my phone in, like, the other room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I started doing that as well. It. I try to leave it on the charger so that I don't even, like, take it out of my bedroom with me. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And my like my brain just like grabs it <laughs> without yeah. me even noticing. I know it's horrible. And like you try to find opportunities to like I'm going to leave my phone at home, but then there's always like, but man, what if yeah, I get GPS. in a car wreck? How like, do I get there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what if this is the one time I need it and I'm that horror movie because the asshole is like, oh, I want to unplug for the afternoon. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
A second um, endorsement of deep work. There, there you go. go. Uh, well, mine is uh, the comic book Black Hole by Charles Burns. It's kind of an older one. Um, it came out in the mid-2000s, I want to say. And I just revisited it uh, the other day because I... Uh, it's a big red book. Uh, <laughs> the spine is very obvious. And I was like, I haven't read this one in a while. Uh, and it is incredible. So it's about um, teenagers in the 70s who uh, they have like a sexually transmitted disease they call the bug that basically causes you to mutate um, in different ways. So some kids, you know, have a sort of mutation that they can hide very easily. Some kids have to run away and start an encampment out in the woods because they've mutated into a giant scary monster and everything in between. And it's so atmospheric and scary and well-observed and heartbreaking all at once that I, I just, uh, I really love it. And so it's, um, worth kind of picking up again. Black hole is the name of the book by Charles Burns. It's a graphic novel. It's a graphic novel. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I'd heard that Fincher had the rights to it for a long time, but, um, we should get the rights. Oh my Let's God. make it. It would be my number one, I think. I had an idea adaptation. last last night about like, instead of like making a movie about superheroes, like can you make a movie about like super faulted people? Like people, instead of they, they can fly, they can like not get away from their phone or like kind of find th- these different vices that people have in, in a future society. Like instead of people being superheroes, they're super failures in a different way <laughs> like like is there a way to invert the superhero genre mm-hmm. yeah and i think what you're talking about is kind of an interesting angle on it yeah man well i'll uh, bring black hole over next time uh i come over to record oh cool uh well charlie thank you so much for being on the show where can our listeners follow along with your career and find out more about you i mean my vimeo is pretty good but you know sometimes like for example uh broken arch store won't be on my vimeo because it'll be on topics Vimeo, of course so you know, charliechirrell.com. Um, I try to update semi-regularly. Um, and that's Charlie spelt as you would think, and then T-Y-R-E-L-L. Thanks so much, Charlie. Um, if you want to find out more about the things that we talked about on the show, uh, all of those will be on our show notes at justshootitpod.com. Uh, we're across all social media at justshootitpod. I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at O. Kaplan on Instagram, which is probably the only place that matters. And this episode was produced by Madeline Rosewatt, was edited by Jay McAuliffe, and our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to right now is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Uh, leave us an iTunes review, and thanks for checking out the podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.